0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Promised land where they will, and and where He is forming them really into an army uh, because they have battle to do to conquest and take possession of the land that He's promised them. And as we see God instructing them, uh, the camp and, and everything that's done is done in a way that it's clear. God is central to their lives and to the camp. And, and he's to be the center around which uh, everything in their life revolves. Um, so that's kind of our big picture theme, God with us. Uh, our message or our title for this morning is uh, do something small. Do something small. Right. Right. Um, I think most of us have a dream or vision of doing big things for God. Anybody here like that? You want to do big things for God? Anybody? Be honest, right? Right. We want, to do, we want to do big things for God because He's worthy of our greatest and best efforts, right? He really is worthy of the best we have. And so there's nothing wrong with a vision to make a great impact for His name and His glory with our life. And we should do that. We should want to do big things. Uh, so why did I call this... Uh, you know, do something small. And I'm getting a lot of base feedback up here. Um, Making much of God in the little things, right? Uh, And here's the thing. The reality is that uh, most days we don't get to be Billy Graham and preach the gospel to tens of thousands of people, right? I mean, even me this morning, I'm up here preaching and, uh, you know, the church is not packed with 5,000 people, right? And, uh, but, but but we fixed that because now we broadcast on Facebook with all this great technology. And I can honestly say, I can honestly say that right now I'm being watched around the world. <laughs> Sounds pretty impressive. But what I really mean by like that is, is by this, there's like five people in other places watching right now. <laughs> all five of them. And, the main, and mainly it's, you know, Denise is watching downstairs. That's the main reason we did this, so people downstairs could watch, right? So, you know... Um, not, not that glorious right uh, you may never ever be asked to be like the keynote speaker at the next great global conference on missions right um, uh, we, we may and, and here's the reality we may not even in any given day get the chance to share Christ with even one person right much less thousands um, uh, we you may pray for people to be healed but uh, good chance you may not heal anybody Today, or this week, or maybe not even this year, right? Um, You may not see a great revival or movement break out this year in your ministry, right? Um, Because uh, life just doesn't work that way, right? Um, Oftentimes, our Christian walk and our Christian life is very mundane, right? We have to go through the motions of living life day by day. So, is it possible to make much of God if we're not always doing grand and glorious things for God? Right? Um, and here in this, in, in, the, in Numbers, God had put Himself in the midst of the camp, in the very center, where He could really be the center of their everyday life. But the truth is that everyday life is 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 not always that exciting. Now, He had done big things for them, bringing them to this point. Right? He had dramatically rescued the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt by these incredible signs and miraculous wonders. And then he led them through the desert to the Red Sea, where he parted the Red Sea, and they walked through, and they saw the whole army of Pharaoh destroyed in the Dead Sea. The chariots and his horsemen all uh, drowned in the sea. Uh, God had done some very impressive things, but that's not everyday life, right? Every day was not going to be a parting of the Red Sea, Every day was not going to be a swarm of locusts, thankfully for them. right? So what does it look like for them to, to live with this holy, glorious presence of God in their midst, um, in the midst of everyday life, where they're just living life? And, and that's where the question for us. How can we make much of God uh, when our day-to-day life may not, on any given day, be doing anything all that glorious or spectacular? Well, I really do believe that Uh, one of the lessons we see today is that God uh, is honored and we can make much of him uh, in the little things. So let's look at Numbers 3 and 4. We're going to kind of briefly survey. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me read some of it. Uh, Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt... I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of mine and of beasts. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And then jumping over to verse 40 of chapter 3. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn cattle among, uh, of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old upward as listed, were 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now take the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 gerahs. And give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded. And then real briefly, a couple of verses in chapter 4. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, by their clans and their fathers' houses, from thirty years to fifty years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. All right. Um, in this, these two chapters, we are looking at the ministry, essentially, of the Levites. And if you remember, last week, if you were here... Um, God ordered Moses to take a census of all the people except the Levites. And that census was a purpose for the purpose of enlisting soldiers to, to go to war. All those 20 years old and upward were to be enlisted, essentially as, as uh, God's army as they marched forward to take the land. But he said, do not include the Levites because the Levites were in a special class God had set aside for a special purpose and so in chapters 3 and 4, uh, we see this census taking of the Levites in, in connection with their job. And there's actually in this chapter three, actually three listings or three census that are taking, taken. Uh, the first one is a very small census, and it's the census of Aaron and his sons, uh, the priesthood. And at this point in Israel's history, the priesthood consisted of uh, five whole people, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Uh, But sadly, two of those have already died because God struck them down with fire when they brought the wrong kind of offering, right? So now uh, Aaron's sons have cut in half. So this is a really easy census. All those sons, you know, Aaron and all the sons of of Aaron, stand up, please. There's three people that stand up. Okay, that was easy. That was quick, right? Um, uh, and, And they are set aside and designated, especially as the priests of Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more what that means in a minute. Uh, but then uh, Moses, or God gives Moses further instructions to record the names of the Levites. And the first census in chapter 3 is of those one month old and up. One month old and up. Essentially all the male Levites. And uh, the purpose that is given for them uh, basically encompasses three things. Three things that was their job or their task that they were being enlisted to uh, and one of them was not to fight. They were not to go to war. Right? They were exempted from that duty. But they did have a duty, and it revolved around uh, helping and serving in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. Uh, and, and verse 5, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron that they may minister to him. And the idea is that the Levites were to serve. They were to serve alongside Aaron. Aaron and now his two remaining sons had a huge task of doing ministry at the tabernacle, of offering the sacrifices and bringing the sacrifices, and there was a lot of work involved with that. Uh, And also, this tabernacle, this temple was portable, right? And it involved, if you remember, reading the descriptions in Exodus and Leviticus, all these tents and coverings and layers and courtyards and poles and posts and bases and, and all the equipment and furnishings inside. Uh, it would have been impossible for Aaron and his two sons to move all this stuff, and so the Levites had been had been recruited, assigned the task of ministering to Aaron and coming alongside and helping him uh, with this huge undertaking. Um, it says also that that the second part of their job was to be uh, actually guarding. Right, they were to guard Aaron. They were to guard. The people, they were to guard the tabernacle and its furnishings. Um, and the reason for that is that um, already we've discovered with the incident of, of Aaron's first two sons, that getting too close to God or approaching the holiness of God could be deadly business. Right? So here's the problem. God wants to live in their midst. He wants his glorious presence to be resonant right in the middle of their camp. Um But that has proven to be deadly. If people get too close, if they approach God in the wrong manner or in the wrong way, the consequences can be instant and devastating, as God destroyed Nadab and Abihu in a ball of fire. And so uh, the, 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 the Levites were given as guards. They were to guard the priesthood of Aaron. They camped around the tabernacle and they served as a buffer between God and the rest of the camp. Uh, and they actually physically stood guard at the entrance of the of the tabernacle. They were commanded to let no outsiders enter. Uh, and the idea were there wasn't that wasn't that people the people of Israel couldn't go into the tabernacle, but there was a way to do it. And the only way to enter properly was through the mediation, the go-between of the priest. Right? So somebody got up in the morning and they decided, I think I'm gonna go have my devotions in the Holy of Holies. You know? I'm gonna go right there with God. I'm just gonna go hang out with God, right? And uh, they go and they, you know, the priests aren't up yet, they're not around, they go, ah, no big deal, I'll just go, right? And they walk in there, and you know, it could be it would be a once in a lifetime meeting with God. <laughs> right? Right? So 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 the the Levites were assigned the task of guarding to make sure that didn't happen to protect uh, not only the tabernacle, but actually to guard the people. It says they were put over the people to guard them, to protect them so that they wouldn't uh, accidentally or even intentionally endanger their own life. Right? It has to be the separation because of the sinfulness of people and the holiness of God. Um, uh, so, so some of those tasks are, are spelled out briefly, but uh, it's actually in the next chapter that, that their job gets spelled out in great detail. The real purpose of this first Census is, is actually in these verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Israelites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb. The Levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Um, Here's here's what's happening. Uh, God is is going to redeem the firstborn of Israel. uh, And to do that, he is doing it with the very lives of the Levites. What is that all about? Well, um, God references it back to to the actual Exodus when they were in Egypt. If you remember the last great event, the last great sign that God sent that brought about their release was that God struck down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Every firstborn son of the Egyptians uh, died. And if you remember, the, 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 the Israelites were given the, the, a protection in the Passover lamb, right? They killed the Passover lamb and, the lamb and they put the blood on the door so that when the death angel came, it passed over those homes and those firstborn sons were spared. Um, but the actual redemption, the actual salvation of Israel came not because of the Passover lamb. Okay, that saved the firstborns, but that didn't actually set Israel free. What actually set Israel free was the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. In other words, God saved them. He redeemed them at the cost of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Right? There was a cost involved in redeeming them. And the very word redemption or redeem means to save something by purchasing them from bondage or by paying for a debt that they owe. That's what redemption means. It's a purchase. Right? And God says that he redeemed them out of slavery. He actually purchased them out of slavery. And the price that was paid was the life of every firstborn of the Egyptians. Right? And so God says, because of that, because I paid that redemption price for you, uh, when, when you're redeemed, you now become the property of the person that redeemed you. And God says, now, the firstborn of Israel belong to me. They're my possession. I own them. I have a right over their life because I redeemed them by exchanging their life uh, with the life of the um, firstborn of Egypt. But God wants to actually redeem them again, right? Uh, Because actually, God does not want the firstborn of Israel serving him in the tabernacle. Now, it doesn't say why, and I don't know if we're going to get real bogged down on the why's, Um, One reason could be that the Levites had already distinguished themselves for their great devotion to God's holiness in the account of the the golden calf. They stood up and they were loyal to God and devoted to Him when everybody else was off worshipping the calf. So they had already distinguished themselves as as people who were concerned about God's holiness. Uh, But maybe a more practical reason is that, as we'll see in the next chapter, when it comes to, to assigning and dividing and ordering their work, It just was easier to do with a tribe that was already divided into clans and tribes and families than to just say, okay, all the firstborn come up here and let me assign you jobs, right? This is a practical part to it. We don't know, and the Bible doesn't say, but um, regardless, God decides that he wants the Levites to serve him in the the service of, of the tabernacle with Aaron and not the firstborn. And so to do that, he arranges this great exchange of the Levite tribe in place of the sons of Israel. And it describes how they do that, and they do this count, because it has to be life for life. But there's two ways to redeem. One, a life for a life. And so they do that, and they count, and it turns out there are 22,000 Levites, one month old and upward. Then they count all the firstborn of Israel, and there's actually 22,273. They're off by 273 people. So what are you going to do? Well, the other option is that you, you exchange life for life, or you pay a purchase price for the worth of that life. In essence, the fair, fair market value, uh, and some people believe of what it would have been to purchase a slave. So for the leftover people, those 273, uh, there's a there's a five shekel payment that's made on their behalf, right? So that's the that's the purpose of this first census. It's laying out this plan and accomplishing this plan of exchanging the Levites in place of the firstborn to serve Aaron in the temple, and the tabernacle, and later throughout history at the temple and beyond, right? Uh, before we move on to the next chapter, though, let me just touch back on, on something that may be for a lot of us a little bit of a problem, and that's this idea of, of how dangerous it is to be in God's presence. And maybe that kind of bothers you, that... Um, You know, if you get too close to God, fire falls from heaven and you get incinerated. And and granted, you know, our own culture, our own modern culture, the modern worldview, I think puts a lot of pressure on Christian thinking and on Christian, our minds. And so uh, for us, this may be very uncomfortable and troubling. Um, How can a God of love be so hostile and violent? And apparently quick-tempered that, man, you get too close, boom, you're incinerated, right? It seems a little unloving, right? And certainly um, in our culture, in modern culture, I'm not sure about every culture where you come from, maybe this is not so true in Asian cultures, but I think more and more in Western cultures, and I was just an American, I just saw this, I don't get to see it all the time, but I saw it, and it's uh, kind of troubling. But there's this, this crazy idea that, that love means you must accept a person exactly as they are, uh, without question, right? Love is, is, is tolerance, right? If you really love somebody, you tolerate them, you accept them, you, um, you take them as they are no matter what. Now certainly there's a sense in which love does that, right? Love is, should be accepting. We shouldn't be prejudiced. We shouldn't decide we're going to love this person and not love that person because of some way they are or something about them. Uh, love is at one level accepting um, but but it goes beyond that in our modern culture um, not only do you have to accept them as they are but you can't have any negative opinion about the way they live their life right you can't you can't say to them well you know the Bible says that what you're doing is actually sin right because to do that is considered to be hateful right because you're not accepting them the way they are right? you're not you're not tolerating their lifestyle. In fact, not only can you not express those opinions, but you're really not allowed to even have those opinions, right? Even if you don't share them, right? In fact, the way it works in the world now, and I've kind of run into this by first-hand experience, is you're not even allowed to share an opinion, even if it's not about them, that they don't agree with, right? Is that true? Am I making this up? I think I'm not making this up, right? Uh, if you have an opinion that is any way different from their opinion, you are unloving, right? Inherently, you, you are filled with hate and prejudice and unlove because love clearly just tolerates everything, right? And so in that kind of thinking, a God who says, yeah, you get close to me, you're toast, right? That kind of seems unloving, right? It didn't like, like accept me the way I am, right? You fried me, right? And that just looks unloving, Um. God not only shares his opinion about sin very directly, but he feels he has the right to destroy somebody who is sinful. Right? To rain judgment and wrath down on them. Right? And I get why in our world, with this whole thing about tolerance, that that's hard to accept. Uh, that, that that's seen as unloving. Uh, but uh, And we don't have time to go into all the flaws in that logic and thinking. I, I don't have, that would take three sermons. But let me just touch on a couple things quickly. First off, the Bible teaches that true love is far more than simply accepting someone as they are with no goal of seeing them become something better. Right? Sure, we accept people as they are, but love says, um, you know, we, we want the best for you, right? And we, we, we have a vision, we have a heart for, for seeing the very best in your life uh, come about and happen, right? Um, The Bible is pictured as seeking... The 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 Bible would, I think, describe or define love, although the Bible doesn't actually define love, but it's pictured in Scripture, uh, both God's love and and how God wants us to love each other, as seeking the very best for another person. Does that sound like a good definition of love? I'm seeking your very best. That's loving. Um, I, I am pursuing your goodwill and best welfare. I'm doing things for you and to help you because it's the best for you, right? Um, But the problem with this is this demands that we first determine what what is good and what is best and what does the best welfare of another person look like, right? How do I know what's really best for you, right? How do I know what's to do that is the best for that person? Well, the world would answer the question this way. What's best is whatever they want, right? What's best for me is what I want, I know me, I know what I want, therefore it's best for me. Um, What what a person desires is the best thing that could possibly happen to them. Now, it doesn't take much to realize how this logic breaks down. For example, a meth addict may have a desperate longing for drugs, for more drugs, for an endless supply of drugs, but no sane person would argue or agree that that's what's best for them. It's killing them, right? Uh, No parent would agree that since what their child wants and what they deeply desire more than anything else is to just eat candy and soda all day long, right? That that is what's best for them. We know that's not true, right? So the problem is that we can't make sense or know uh, really what is best for us. And certainly our desires can be very deceiving, right? What's best for us must be uh, defined or come from somewhere outside of us. And and we know that it does come from God. The Bible makes it clear that that God wants the best for us. God absolutely wants the very best, and He pursues the best for every human being. Not just accepting them as they are, but He sees everything that He ideally created them to be and wants them to be. And it's God's love that pushes us, that drives us, that moves us to be the best as He intended and created us. And that standard of what's good, what's right, what's best, uh, is rooted in the very character of God. Right? He is the, the definition of goodness because everything about him is good. It's perfect. It's right. He, he is the standard of of what we all should be aspiring to, right? to become uh, something that reflects the character and image of God that we were created in. Uh, and his goodness, his absolute perfection is... Is 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 just what he is, and that that nature or character of God is summed up in his holiness. Right? so the Levites were to be guarding the holiness of God. It's who he is. Right, it's in his nature. It is rooted and bound up in every fiber of God's being eternally. He is holy. He is good. He is free and without sin and corruption and 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 falseness. Right. Um. So. So what that means is that God in His holiness is such a being that He just can't He just can't be around sin, right? Not because He's intolerant or because He's hateful. In fact, He's full of love, but because He He is a burning fire that just consumes sin. Right? Uh, another an, an illustration to maybe explain this further. Uh, God is holy like light, right? Light inherently by its nature banishes darkness, right? It's not like it's prejudiced against darkness or that it hates the darkness. It's just by its very nature, when the light comes into a room, the darkness disappears, right? And so it is with the nature of God. His holiness banishes sin. It burns it away. He can't help it because it is who he is in his very nature. Or maybe another example would, would help. Um... Uh, we all benefit greatly from electricity. We're in this room with lights that are powered by electricity. I can speak and you can hear me, and I don't have to be uh, Spurgeon who could yell and fill a room of five thousand people with his voice, right? You can, I get electricity that helps, right? We understand the benefits, and our homes are full of its its um, tools that benefit us, right? Um, it is a good thing. Uh, however, if it is wrongly handled, it is deadly. Right? Uh, there's reasons why we don't have bare electrical wires just hanging all around the room. Right? It has to be handled carefully. Uh, it has to be insulated. There needs to be a buffer between that power and us, or it's deadly. And if you don't handle it correctly, the results are what? Deadly. Right? Is it because electricity is evil or it hates you? No, it's a good power but it must be handled carefully. So it is with the holiness of God. He is good and He is powerful and it's inherent in who He is. But His holiness must be handled carefully. There must be a, a, a buffer, just like electricity, between us and Him. And the thing is, we know God is loving because He didn't just put His holiness out there unprotected. Right? He, he sent the Levites to guard the tabernacle to protect people because he did love them. Because it was his grace. And he provided the priests as a way for them to properly come into his presence through the priest uh, without risk of death. Um, So we come to that's the first census. Second census is a little simpler. Uh, This census is directed at Levites only from the ages of thirty to fifty. And the purpose of this second census in chapter 4 is, uh, he says, so that they can come on duty. Uh, List them by clans from 30 to 50, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. Right, the first one was uh, a redemption was an exchange. The second one is about their actual work. And he's enlisting actual real workers by writing down by name all of those between the ages of 30 and 50. Uh, there are some qualifications. You have to be a Levite, right? Nobody could just apply. You had to be a Levite. They were chosen for this job. Secondly, you had to have a certain level of strength, physical strength, right? They were carrying these huge skins and, and tarps of the tent and heavy bronze altars, right? They had to have some strength. So as a, uh, as a result, nobody over 50 could do that, right? Apparently, those of us over 50 are weak, right? And uh, you sorry, You can't, can't, no heavy lifting for you, right? So over, because they had to be strong. But it's interesting, they also had to have, they also had to be at least 30. Now, to be, to go to war, they could be 20. But for this job, they had to be 30. Because this job also required a certain degree of maturity. Maturity. Sorry, all those, you you know, 20 to 30. Sorry, I'm not insulting you. But apparently there was a certain level of growing up that had to take place before uh, you were qualified to, to to enter into the service in the tabernacle, right? Uh, and so, so those were some of the qualifications. And the chapter breaks down the work, and we're not going to go into uh, all the detail, uh, but but basically, God uh, writes the names down uh, and creates this list of workers, and the work is divided by by clans, um, uh, the the descendants of 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 Levi, the Gersh. Gersh the tribe of uh, the clan of Gershom the clan of Kohath and the clan of Merari to Gershom was assigned the job of carrying all the tents and curtains and coverings to Kohath was assigned the task of carrying the actual furniture the ark of the covenant and the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar and the water basin all the all the furniture to Merari was given the task of the wood frames that supported it all the courtyard and the tents um, and their, uh, their work is assigned carefully with oversight and direction. Uh, and, and it's God who oversees their work and, and instructs them with great detail of what they're supposed to do. Um, and, and as I said, it's very serious business. Um, Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 spells out that even for them there was risk in this work. Right? They could also die. He says... He says, uh, they shall not touch the holy things lest they die. So even though this was their job, they could not touch the ark or the lampstand or the holy things. Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, let not the tribe of the clans of Kohathites be destroyed, uh, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die. Verse 20, they shall not even go in to look on the holy things for a moment lest they die. So it was serious work, it was important work. Um, and it was well divided by God. Uh, so that's chapters 3 and 4. There you have it, right? Um, they, they are a substitute for the firstborn, and they're given this important task of, of carrying and guarding the tabernacle. Uh, back to our first question. You know, how do we make a really big deal of God? If God is in our presence, in our midst, how do we make a big deal of that? Um... Is it only by doing extraordinary things for God? Uh, well, I think the, the lesson here, um, and there's a lot of detail, and that's what kills us off reading through the book of Numbers, honestly. It's, it's so detailed. There's all these names and numbers, and we read through it and we just lose it, right? And it's tedious and it's mundane, and it's not spectacular. Right? There's no lightning bolts. There's no parting of the Red Sea. It's like, yeah, you dude over there, you pick up these boards and you carry these sticks and these boards and you pick up these bases and you carry those bases and you cover this with that curtain and you're. And then we're into nap time, right? We we zoned off, right? Um, It's not exciting. Uh, but, But here's the thing they were to give careful diligence to these thousands of small tasks and duties. All this guarding, all this uh, standing guard at the door, all this carrying stuff. Uh, and in that, it focused the entire community on the incredible weight of God's presence and glory with them. Okay, a lot of attention was given to this, and a lot of activity, a lot of commotion, a lot of priority. And all those little details, it made a big deal of God in their midst. It highlighted and emphasized God's holy presence as a central feature of their community. It's a lot like raindrops, right? One raindrop uh, is super insignificant. It it could be argued that one raindrop couldn't even penetrate far enough in the dirt to nurture one tiny little plant, right? Uh, One raindrop in itself can't really do anything significant, But what happens when enough raindrops get assembled together? Well, you get enough raindrops assembled in one place, and it can become a raging flood that can level cities. And that's really the picture here. It's these thousands of small drops that in themselves may not be that significant, but pooled together from a river of activity that focuses on the uh, the holiness of God's presence in their midst. uh, and it says God spoke. God spoke and they, they did according to all that He commanded. He organized it. He structures it. And it's it's little jobs, right? He says, write down a list of names. He says to the Levites, go get your name written down. Hey, well, that's kind of boring. Like, how does that glorify God? Well, it was part of it. Get get listed, right? Um, exchanging your life for a life, right? Packing furniture, Rolling up sections of the tent, emptying ashes, carrying wooden frames, even not touching and not peeking, right? All these little things made much of God. Standing on guard at the at the entrance of the tabernacle, like how many of you when you drive in and out of your muban every day, and there's the guy there that opens the gate for you. Tell your kids that's what you want to do when you grow up. You know, be that guy, because like that's it, right? Anybody? There's like, wow, that's got to be the most boring job ever. But that's what the Levites did. They were guards. They stood on guard duty, opening the gate, letting people in and out of the tabernacle. No, no literal gate, but they're the, that's what their job was, right? Um, so let's think about this as we close, wrap this up with, how does this work in the New Testament, in our era? You know, we don't have a tabernacle. We're not Levites. Uh, the priesthood is gone. What does it look like for us? Well, uh, in the New Testament... Uh, God has assured and promised his holy presence with us. Uh, if it was with Israel, it is, it is more so with us. And it's pictured a lot of ways in scripture, but there's three uh, very clear images of temples in the New Testament. And all of those images picture God uh, like it did with Israel in, in his glorious holy presence in our midst that we have access to. So we're going to look at those briefly, but let me just touch on two things that don't relate to the temple that come out of this passage, of how we can make much of God in little things. First thing, be attentive to His Word. Be attentive to His Word. Over and over and over again in the first ten chapters, there's this formula. God spoke to so-and-so, and and in the end, they did as the Lord commanded. Chapter 4, verse 49. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were listed. Each one with his task of serving or carrying. Thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Sometimes God's commands and instructions are tedious and detailed and not all that spectacular. Right? Um, But we need to be attentive to be obedient even in the little things. It matters. It matters to God. Uh, Samuel told... King Saul. Uh, What God desires is not sacrifice but obedience. Are we being obedient? Are we attentive to God's word? Are we taking his word seriously? And are we attentive to be obedient in every little thing? Second thing, um, you don't belong to you. A great principle out of this passage is the principle of redemption. uh, he says, "Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of the firstborn. The Levites shall be mine. The firstborn are mine. Right? They shall be mine. I am the Lord." Um, redemption means that God has purchased you, and Jesus is our Redeemer. First Corinthians six nineteen to twenty says this: "Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own." You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, we do not belong to our own. We make much of God when we simply serve Him in simple ways. Right? I'm not saying, like, if, if you have the chance to preach to tens of thousands or whatever, go for it, right? But I'm saying don't be dissatisfied with the daily service that God gives you. Like, maybe... God's given you the glorious task today of washing dishes <laughs> right Your life is not your own. you don't belong to you. right Serve God joyfully in the little tasks. Every day I get the wonderful, joyful task of driving kids to school, which in it's so easy here because there's no traffic, there's never traffic jams. You never sit for 45 minutes at a stoplight, right um, it's not glorious, but it's not my life, right? Be faithful in the little things that God calls you to to serve Him. Third thing, uh, draw near to God. And, and more, more, more specifically, draw near to the throne of grace. The first image of God's temple in the New Testament is His heavenly temple where His throne is and where Jesus Himself is seated. Did uh, you know that you do not have to wait till you die and go to heaven to approach that throne. This is incredible. Right now today, you are invited into the very presence of God as He sits on His throne in heaven. There is no barrier or divider. Like when we think there is, because we think somehow there's a lot of space between this universe and heaven. But it is as near to us as you will ever get. Right? Hebrews 9.12 says this, uh, and, and, and we go there, uh, we go there, and, are, and we have access to there because we have a great high priest in Jesus. Right, just like in, in, in the in the time of, of Moses, they had to go through a priest; they couldn't just walk in the same way. We need a priest, but we have a great high priest, Jesus. Hebrews nine twelve. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Right? Um, so we are invited in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's amazing. Right? God invites us to the throne of grace. And you may go, well, I don't even know what that looks like. Uh, don't make it too spectacular. That's part of the problem. Right? It's a simple thing. It just means that daily, we make a big deal of God by, by consciously seeking Him and drawing near to Him. And in faith, accepting that this is true. That through Jesus, we have access to the very throne of God. And we go to Him in prayer and in His word and in fellowship. And And maybe it's not so much that we ever do anything. Maybe we make a lot of God just by sitting in His presence and being before His throne. And acknowledging that we're there by the blood of Jesus. And we are in His presence. And we make a big deal of it. I talk to a lot of people who they can't wait to get to heaven but it's like I don't believe it because uh, you, you never spend time there now right? what, what do you think is going to happen when you die that's going to be different right it, 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 if it's a big deal to us make it a big deal by making it a part of our daily life that we draw into the presence of God um, Hebrews 1019. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain, through His flesh, right? we enter through Jesus. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let's draw near. Um, second, or Number four. Fourth thing. Only two left. Fourth thing. Guard your body. Our body is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you may say to the first two things, yeah, I would love to, I mean, I I want to, you know, I want to be attentive to His Word. I want to be obedient. I want to be doing the things He says, but honestly, I feel like I fail more than I succeed, right? Uh, Maybe to the second one, you say, yeah, I want to come into His presence, but I don't feel worthy. Uh, Well, praise God that through the priesthood of Jesus, He opens the way for us, right? through what Jesus has done through His cleansing death, we have access because of Him, not because of our goodness. But, but that doesn't mean that we can just go on sinning and be careless about how we live our life. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and holy. And you are that temple. Uh, he goes on in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians to say, Therefore flee from sexual immorality. Everyone that's, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. You are bought with the price. We should be making a big deal by being attentive to the little ways that we daily uh, practice holiness, that we, we, we do that battle against sin. No matter how many times we fail and lose, we keep battling. Right? We keep battling uh, because our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, then, and here's a practical way to do that. Uh, Romans 6, Paul says, to, to not present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but to present yourselves to God uh, your members as instruments for righteousness. I think daily presenting our body to those tasks, those simple ways of obeying of doing what he's called us to. lastly finally um, the third temple picture is is the gathered church right? um, Do not neglect the gathered church right? um, Ephesians 2:19. So when you are, no longer, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. When we gather, uh, God is in our midst. God is in our midst. Um, and so for that reason, the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Um, and, and here's the thing. Uh, tr- making much of God in church means doing little things. Right? It means signing up. Right? Uh, every year, about this time of year, we'll start next month. We're going to ask you to uh, sign up for our covenant uh, covenant care program. Um, it's amazing how many of you don't sign up. Right? Um, I don't get it, honestly. Um, if, if 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 this is the temple of God, this gathered local assembly of believers, and not that ours is better than another, all every local gathered church is a temple of God where His presence dwells. When we come together, God's presence is here with us. Right? His holy presence. God wants to be with us as a collected body. Right? Does it matter enough to us to just sign up? Right? To just be listed. To be counted. Right? To be named. As, as one of those at this local local place. Um, do a job. Right? There's lots of jobs. We've got lots of jobs. we got lots of two-by-fours to carry. Well, actually, we don't have 2 by fours to carry, but we have other jobs. And some of them are not very glorious, you know? Taking care of those little stinky two-year-olds, right? Not glorious. Uh, But but all those little tasks are ways that we make much of God. You know, we we are such a consumer-driven culture and society. And we think it's all about the show up front. It's not. It's about you there... Doing little things together, that we are like the Levites. All of our thousand little raindrops when we gather on Sunday morning does something that is pleasing to God. Right? Let's make a big deal of God in those little things, in our personal life, in the church, right? in our communion and fellowship with Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.